Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Dominic Neshi, who's one of the co-founders of Wealthy, which is a real estate property investing platform. And we have a chat to Dominic about his background in financial planning and real estate development. He worked with the major property developers, Third Eye Property, and he has some great takeaways about what he learned from working within that company. We have a chat to him about the way that he works with his clients, how he goes about his due diligence, how he researched the markets to understand the supply and demand characteristics and basically just take a deep dive everything property investing from his viewpoint it's an awesome interview with dominic and i really hope you enjoy it here's dominic dominic neshi thanks for joining me on geared for growth mike it's great to be here Pleasure to have you on, Dominic. And for anyone that maybe hasn't come across you before, can you start us off with who you are and what you specialize in? Yes. You know, when you asked me who I was, I was like, do I get deep and philosophical here? But now let's <laughs> Well, we know your name, so you've got to give us you gotta give us something deeper. Yeah, well, um, I have been working in property basically all of my life. Um, you know, business, property, finance. Um, and it's just been a great, great passion of mine. Um, and over the past, let's just say, almost 15 years, 14-odd years, I've bought, sold real estate. I've worked in financial planning, helping clients build portfolios all over Australia. I've researched different areas of high-growth markets. Um, in that time, I then also decided it was good working for clients, helping them build portfolios, but I was very, very interested to learn more about the property process. How do you develop property? How do you cut up pieces of land? What's the differences between residential, commercial, industrial? So I then transitioned over into property development and I worked for a, um, a successful property development company called Third Eye Group for, for a long stint. And... Um, we were very successful, those guys, and uh, I think they made top three in the Fast 100 a couple of years ago. So, yeah, very heavy hitters. Yeah, they're a great group of guys. I got to learn a lot from Ron Dad, Robert Huxley, and Luke Berry. Um, we, we, in that time, went from doing small little townhouse development sites in, like, Wyella that were worth, you know, the whole development was maybe five or six million bucks to near the end of... My term there, um, I was launching development sites that were, you know, in excess of $100 million, you know, doing massive house and land subdivisions, you know, commercial buildings. It was, I got to sink my teeth into a lot of really interesting property developments. Um, and then after leaving uh, Third Eye, I moved back into helping clients build portfolios because that was my passion. And that's when I teamed up with my now current business partner, Peter Esho, who's a, a used to be a stock analyst. And um, we came together because we just felt that property investment wasn't treated with the same respect that stocks or managed funds or other financial instruments were treated with. So we wanted to bring that degree of professionalism, research, and, um, you know, just just you know, detail and attention to the property space. And um, we've been running that business for a couple of years. The company is now called, it's called Wealthy. And um, yeah, man, it's, it's been a joy. It's been a really good ride. And, you know, now we're in some interesting times, but uh, yeah, onward mm. and upward, really. 
It's, a, it's an interesting point you make because, of course, when you look at the, the stock market, there are people that are just absolute specialists, analysts and, and traders and there's, there's, you know, there's, there's tons of books. You could spend your whole life studying charts and all that sort of stuff. But when you talk about property, you've got, you know, economists and you've got real estate agents and buyers agents. But I, I think you're right. You don't have analysts to the sort of the same level. So I'm interested to take a deep dive in that. But taking a step back to get us, this is maybe answering the question of who you really are, Dominic, is what posters were on the bedroom wall growing up? Yeah, I had an interesting bedroom for the first, you know, 12, 13 years of my life where my parents basically created a, I had a Ferrari bed. My dad created a bed that was, he's a, he's a, carpent, a carpenter and a builder. Wow. So I had a bed the shape of a red Ferrari. My brother had a yellow Ferrari and our back wall was a racetrack. And then you can imagine that I had basically sports cars on my wall. Um, <laughs> We're uh, almost talking to Mark Webber today. Yeah. <laughs> And then after that, I moved into, you know, my own room. <laughs> and then and then I've always been very sort of aspirational. So I've always had stuff on the walls that, that, that encouraged me and, and things that made me want to move forward. So, you know, it wasn't uncommon to see, you know, Bruce Lee or to see some amazing home or something like that. So from a really early age, I've always been motivated by, you know, almost that, that vision, well, what do I want to achieve? Who inspires me? What can I do to get to that level or to get that thing? Yeah. Yeah, cool. And a lot of people, I guess, um, yeah, have got that sort of aspirational side of them and yeah, the vision boards and all that sort of stuff is, uh, is a good way to keep you pointed in the right direction. And Ferraris aren't cheap. So you've got to, you've got to do, you've got to be somewhat successful to get into one of those. Yeah. What about? What about property? How did you get started in property and what was your first investment, Dominic? Well, I was I did a business degree and I was a financial planner. And I started that I started as a financial planner when I was very, very young. I was working part-time at a company called Announcer. And I was doing my, my degree in business and I was working as a financial planner, you know, during the day and then doing a degree at night. When I was about 20, 21, I bought, bought my first property. I, um, I had no idea what I was doing, but I was gung-ho about trying to get this property because growing up, my family wasn't very wealthy. They, they kind of had their own home. They were, they were paying down their mortgage and doing whatever they could do. But my mum and my dad would always refer to these people that owned property as they were wealthy. They were rich. They 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 had they had the ability to make better life decisions and choose to send their kids to better schools and all that kind of stuff. So I knew that I immediately need to go buy a property as fast as I humanly could. Um, so I read all the books I possibly could about it. You know, zero to three hundred and sixty-five properties. You know, rich dad, poor dad, richest man in Babylon, all that kind of stuff. And because I didn't have any money, um, soon as I. I saved up enough cash. I just went out and, and sorted by basically price as close to the CBD as I could get. And I ended up buying a two-bedroom apartment in a little suburb called Lakemba. Right. 
Now, you said you, you didn't really know exactly what you're doing, but you at least had some methodology. You know, you had a price point and you knew you wanted to be close to the to the city. Was that as deep as it got or did you did you analyse it a little bit more? No, I went much deeper. So I, I originally didn't know what I was doing, but I started reading about, well, what's a yield? Uh-huh. What's, what's the cash flow? How much is my mortgage going to cost me? Because I was a financial planner and I was working at Announcer Group, I had access to... To the left of me, I'd sit next to a guy named Joe Katani, who was a, a, an accountant. Um, and then on my left, I'd sit next to a guy called Chris Booth, who was a mortgage broker. Um, so I had all of these people. I had a, a team of people just around me that I could ask about, well, what's this mortgage going to do? What's principal and interest? What's interest only? What, what, what kind of accountability will I have? How will I structure this? So it... it I didn't know anything when I started, but once you jump into a process, you quickly start figuring things out. And I yeah. figure things out by, you know, learn by doing and by talking to people. So by the time you pulled the trigger on that property, you you were you had upskilled yourself pretty well and obviously leveraged the guys around you to to make a very educated decision. That's right. I mean, I did a lot of things that you probably wouldn't do. Like the apartment wasn't perfect, it was south facing, it was you know, didn't have a balcony. There's a lot of things that, that went that in hindsight, I, I would say, listen, it's probably not the best investment, but, you know, and everybody told me that, you know, it's a shocker. Why are you going to go buy this thing? But at that point in time, I had, I think, $10,000 to my name. You could use the first homeowner's grant back when you could buy any property. Um, mm-hmm. And this property, I think it was 200, 200 grand or something. It was It was very, very cheap. So I just... <laughs> I just did whatever I could to get into a property, you know, and figure the rest out later. And have you still got that one? I do. That one's worth more than double than what it is now. So it's 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 fine. <laughs> I always love that story. The first investment and people st- people still hold on to it. That's pretty cool. Maybe it's just nostalgic. I just hold on to it for safekeeping. <laughs> I'm actually sort of, th- I was thinking the other day, it'd be nice to go back and buy every house that I've ever lived in. And then I realised we moved a lot. I've got work to do. <laughs> yeah. So you you obviously were a financial planner, but you've also got an advanced diploma in property. So that sort of, I guess that's that's more of a qualification that heads down the valuation path. So were you sort of figuring out with your business degree in financial planning and the property exactly what you wanted to do in property? I just love property. You know, I just, I did, I did the advanced diploma um, because I wanted to know as much as I possibly could about property. And, you know, there weren't really any property degrees. There was a, a property economics degree. So it was a step in that direction. Um, but yeah, that was a way to learn about valuations, to learn about different building methodologies, about, you know, what's the difference houses that were being built at different times, you know. Um, so it was just a really a way for me to get as close to property as I could. You know, when you have a passion for something, you just kind of throw yourself headlong and say, well, what's available to me, whether it's education, whether it's people, whether it's books, whatever you can do, it's just, you know, latch onto that and try and just absorb it all. You're all in on property, just a big sponge. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> 
You've you've held a number of high level positions within the property game at large, and you obviously referenced the time with Third Eye Group, and and they've moved from I guess a relatively small developer to being one of the big boys. What have you learned about property investing by being able to look behind the curtain? I sort of by that I mean you know you you can see the internal mechanisms of how property is created, how how people plan for property, obviously the way people can make money in development. Are there any sort of main insights that you've seen throughout your career that that can help property investors there is yeah there, there's it's a big question <laughs> how long because, have we got <laughs> yeah it's a big question because there are so many facets that we could go down um and it also just depends at what stage in your investment journey you're in you know um yeah. when you first start i think one of the best things you could do is not overcomplicate things. Um, don't try and do too much and just work within your your means, within your budget, within your your, your, your your bounds. And what I mean by that is if you've got limited time and capacity, don't don't overcomplicate it. Don't try and buy it off too much because you can really hurt yourself. Or don't try and do a crazy scheme don't try and go too far away from where you are you know what i mean don't don't do anything too crazy because the further you go away from what you know and understand you start leaving yourself open to mistakes and in property mistakes can be very very costly Um, i guess development's a pretty good example of that too right because people that invest in property there's a lot of them that sort of see development as the next stage or the, the grass is greener over there you get a lot better returns H- however you can get it wrong and really undo all of the work you've done in in sort of building up a a portfolio to that stage right there's a there's a risk reward equation that you need to understand that's exactly right and it's it's let me give you an example so the the guys that i used to work for um were very smart men. They had a property development company. And the, obviously, when you run a property development company, you own buildings, you own land. Um, but the guys still invested in individual widgets. You know, they still went and bought or, you know, took a piece of each of one of their developments. Um, what they would also do is they would buy the house that they wanted to live in they would uh, renovate it and then they'd flip it and then buy something bigger. And that's just a very simple mechanism for you to uh, avoid paying any taxes because if your principal place of residence, you own your own home, they live in a beautiful house and then they'd sell it, they'd make a bit of profit and they'd just keep on moving along. That's like a, a very simple mechanism for someone to go and invest in property. So that's, you know, doing it by your own home. And they were probably doing all right just in the business, right? But it's it's a way for them to 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 do even better to supplement the 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 cash flow from the from the business by taking advantage of a of a pretty good sort of tax situation where you you're not having to worry about the capital gains, right? That's exactly right. So that that's that's my point exactly. These guys, if you take away the day job, which is property development, they were still investing personally and doing one of the least sophisticated uh, property investment, you know, strategies, just flipping your own home. Yeah, awesome. 
I'm interested in your property investing journey. So obviously you got the first one at, at, a, at a young age of 21 in, in Lakemba. Um, where did you go from there? And were there any particular methodologies that you follow? We sort of touched on, you know, proximity to the, to the CBD, but where did you go from there and what sort of properties were you targeting? Well, I went and bought a handful of properties after that. Um, and I really focused in on what I was doing for a living. So whilst I was at Third Eye, I was working with the fellas in also looking for where's the next hotspot. So where's the next area that we should go and develop? Now, Third Eye actually stands for uh, your, your third eye, so looking into the future, but then the three eyes, which is investments in infrastructure. So part of the job was going out, doing research, and following government reporting and seeing where's the next rail line, where's the next, uh, you know, schools, what's actually happening, where is the government and all these big companies spending money? Because if you just follow that, it's a very, very simple thing, but you can see that a particular city or a suburb is going to get better over time through accessibility, through, you know, bars, schools, shops, you know, you can see where an area is going to change over time. So our research led us to Newcastle very, very early on, and this was before it boomed. So one of the next properties I bought was, again, I was a young guy. I, I didn't have a ton of cash, so I just went and bought whatever I could afford. And, again, people said, look, it's probably not the best idea to do this, but I bought a one-bedroom, one-bathroom, no-car spot, uh, units in Newcastle. Right. It was um, 200 and, I don't know, 90,000 or something. But what I had identified is there was going to be, they were going to remove it, the, these train lines. They were going to do a whole heap of infrastructure into the city. And this particular unit was 50 square metres internal, but it had like a 40 square metre balcony. So I felt that that was a unique Identify or something that made this property very different to everything else. Um, mm. Lo and behold, I bought it off the plan. So I, I'd only had to, I negotiated with my bosses at the time to just do a small deposit. <laughs> yeah. And um, by the time that property actually completed, it, it was worth more than 400000 So it was an 18 month process and I'd made nearly 100K by putting down a small deposit. And that was, that was my next step. Um, so as a young fella who had just put in like a 5% deposit, which was, you know, 5% on 290,000 is 15K. And then, mm. you know, nearly 18 months later, it's worth a hundred thousand dollars more. I was like, wow, this is a fun game, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes. And I guess that's pretty intoxicating, right? So you could kind of think, you know what, my methodology is now off the plan, but You've got to be either lucky or clever to get into something that's going to appreciate over the construction timeline, right? Because, you know, 18 months or two years, it's a bit of a risk. If the market's going the other direction, you might have trouble settling or you're stuck with an asset that's it's worth less than what you paid for it. How, how, is that something that you see investors try to do is to get into off the plan and have similar results? And how easy is that to do? It's very difficult. So like, just because I did it, you know, I I've done it a couple of times, but just because I've done it doesn't mean it's appropriate for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. It is a risky strategy. It, it, it does depend on you doing your research, knowing a market very, very deeply, understanding 
you know, what's going to happen? How is this city or how is this suburb going to change and evolve? Having a very clear vision, um, but then also understanding the supply constraints on a given city or a suburb. Um, I, I knew that in, in the city I could see how many DAs had been submitted and how many applications had gone through and been approved. I knew that the city was notoriously difficult to develop in because there's a whole bunch of mine subsidence. So underneath the ground in Newcastle is basically, it's like, you know, Swiss cheese. So it's difficult for anyone to just go and develop towers there. Um, so at that point in time, I, I did a lot of research and I understood that, that strategy was going to be right for me. But, but also it was, I didn't have a lot of cash available. So it was a way for me to get into the market and have my hand on something whilst I knew the market was going to run. I didn't have a full 10% deposit plus stamp duty. I had 5% and I just had to, I wanted to get into the market. I had 15K and I'm like, well, what can I do? If I negotiate this rate, I'll get a 5% deposit. I can wait a couple of years. And whilst it's under construction, even if it doesn't grow, I can use that time to save up a bigger deposit, have my full 10% plus costs. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But uh, but you're right. It, It can be very risky and it's, it's a tool that you can use. It's a strategy that suits a specific person at a specific time and place, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. And and outside of off the plan, what does your sort of typical investment look like from a bread and butter point of view? So let's say you're, you're working with a, a client who's maybe got one property or looking at their first and that, you know, they're, maybe they're in their 30s or, or 40s and you just want to get them something that's going to give you know reasonable capital growth but not too hard to hold on to is there is there a, a bread and butter style investment that that you would recommend and what and if so what does it look like um it's the short answer is no um because first and foremost we only sell brand new property and the reason why we sell brand new property is because we operate similar to a mortgage broker. So if you're familiar with a mortgage broker to all you out there, when you sit with a mortgage broker, they have a look at your, your, your current financial standing. They say, well, how much are you earning? What's your debts? Um, how much have you saved? What assets do you have? Then based on what you have, they go and shop your deal around to all the banks. And more or less, whichever bank they take your deal to, they, want to, they get paid the same amount. So they get paid by the bank to deliver a service or to give you the best possible loan. So we work in the same way. We work with our clients, figure out what their current asset position is or what they're trying to achieve, and then we have a look at all the best opportunities that are in the market, and depending upon what their risk appetite is, how much they can afford, we make recommendations that suit their needs. Now, so do you have a question there? Yeah, I was just going to say, and, and, and what makes the newer property an attractive proposition from an investment point of, point of view? Well, there's a few things. Um, you know, one is it's, it's generally it's, it's easier or you get better quality tenants in brand new properties. Yeah. Um, when you've got a pool of properties out there, the one that's, you know, well-insulated, ducted air conditioning, really nice appliances, a little bit easier than one that's a little bit beaten up, you know. Uh, 
there's a certain amount of tax effectiveness that comes from brand new property. It's one of the most tax effective way investments that you can go and purchase through depreciation, which is really, really good. Um, and also you just get access to properties that you ordinarily wouldn't get access to. So some areas are just simply locked up. And unless someone develops or brings something to the market, you're not going to get into that market. Or It's often a different price point too, right? Because yeah. the houses in a certain area might be two million bucks, but you can get a, an apartment if it's developed there for six, seven hundred maybe. Yeah, and you might get an amazing view that you just don't get on the ground, you know? Yeah. Um, one of the most expensive pieces of residential real estate was in Brangaroo. It was 130, was 130? One, yeah, $130 million apartment. Um, so there are a number of reasons why we like brand new property. Uh, we also like the fact that we're not charging our clients a fee. Um, we're transparent. You know, we typically earn between that 2 and 3% on a, on a deal. Um, but it's just a general cost of doing business, right? Whether you go to a developer direct or you buy something on the secondhand market, there is an agent on the other side that's getting paid a fee to just do the deal. Um, the difference is we work for our clients and we understand that their situations very, very intimately. We know what they're trying and, to achieve. And, and your fee is not necessarily meaning that straight away they're paying two or three grand more or two or three percent, I should say, um, more than somebody else because I'm guessing that with your network and with your volume, you maintain pretty good relationships with developers. Um, so you, you, you can potentially get into deals that maybe aren't available to, to people like myself. Well, now it's, it's, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, I'll give you a for instance. Now, um, it's it's unfortunate because some people are have lost their jobs and can't complete on certain apartments or houses or um, townhouses. Uh, or there are developers now that really need to get some pre-sales or they have leftover units or houses that they need to get off their balance sheet so they can move to the next development. Yep. Now, for them to give a 5 or even 10% discount, a big discount, it might be $50,000 that a client can save, but the, client, the developer is looking at the bigger piece of that pie and saying, well, I want the $450,000 to come to me because it means that they can yep. keep on moving. Or for the client yeah. that can't complete on the transaction, they bought this thing maybe you know 18 months ago um, and they just need to get out. They don't want to lose their deposit, so we're going to do our best to try and help them and we'll figure out a way that our client can get the best deal possible. So you are right. If you're going to go and buy you know, uh, one, one apple, it's going to cost you a couple of bucks, but if you buy you know, 30 or 40 apples, then it suddenly gets a bit cheaper. So with volume, we do get discounts and we do get better incentives for our clients. Cool. Now, getting back to Wealthy, you started uh, a couple of years ago. I'm interested in, in what made you sort of want to go. I guess in a way you're sort of going a step back from, say, the development side where you're working with individuals. What, what motivated you to do that? And can you tell us about how you work with clients, how you sort of onboard them with the process and the planning side of things? Well, there's something... Um special that you get when you work with people one-on-one you know i've i just had 
a whole heap of clients uh, settle on a bunch of apartments. They're all basically rented out and, you know, everything's working tickety-boo. We've got the insurances, we've got the depreciation schedules, everything's organised. We've got the, the, the rental manager in place and all the things we said we're going to do have now come into fruition. And for some of these clients, it's their first property. And it's interesting for me, every time I help a client buy a property, I feel like I'm buying a property. I get that same buzz all over again. <laughs> um, and it's, let me just start at the genesis of why we call ourselves wealthy. Um, we really believe that in order for you to be wealthy, you need to own your time. So if you don't own your time, you're not a wealthy person. If you, if you, now, now, if you lose your job, even if you're earning $500,000 a year, if you lose that job, then you're not wealthy because I'm sure you've got some crazy levels of expenses. So for us, we thought about the way that you're wealthy, it's a simple formula. It's your total passive income over your total life expenses. So if your total passive income is greater than your life expenses, then effectively you're wealthy. You can stop working, you can go and do whatever the hell you want to do and live your life. Um, now, one of the reasons why we, we love property is that you do get really good passive incomes. It's an asset that you can put a small amount of, or a large amount of money, but you get a really good amount of leverage out of the asset. You get capital growth and you get, um, you know, it's a home. There's, it's not a discretionary thing. People need it. So times like now when, you know, you probably don't need as many iPhones and you don't need you know, to eat as much chocolate, share prices can come off. There's all this discretionary stuff that comes off, but everybody needs a house over their head. The government is working to make sure that everyone can still pay their rent and look after the tenants and look after the landlords. And it's just a good, healthy part of the market that's always um, sort of performed well and been quite stable over the long run. Yep. And what is the process when you're sort of, I guess, onboarding a, a new client? Is it a discussion about how they get to that wealth equation or what their goals are? Or typically, how does that conversation go? Well, clients come on our website. That's just wealthy.com.au. And that's wealthy spelt with an I, W-E-A-L-T-H-I. And you do a wealth score. Um, after you've done that wealth score, we get a, a rough idea on who you are, do you earn any assets? Someone from our team will give you a call um, and we basically have a sort of 15, 20-minute conversation, a deep dive and understand your situation more intimately. So we need to know what's your income, your expenses, what assets do you own, and then what are you trying to achieve and in what time frame. And then we just reverse engineer it. The next time that we catch up with you, we take you through our PIES methodology, which is how we pick high-growth markets. That's You've heard of PIES, haven't you, Mike? Mm-hmm. Yeah, population, uh, investments in infrastructure, employment growth, and then supply. That's how we pick the markets. And then we make recommendations based on the information that you've told us. doesn't cost our clients anything. If they do purchase one of those properties, that's when we get paid and they get a property that they want. I'm interested in in your sort of analysis for, for picking these areas. You sort of talked before about just seeing, I guess, development applications and you can see when infrastructure is going in. What, what are, are there any magic ingredients? Like is, is it as simple as saying, all right, there's a coals going into this 
this greenfield area so that's that's when we know it's going to happen or there's a uh, there's some gentrification and some coffee shops going into this inner city pocket that's that's the trigger no i wish it was that simple <laughs> um i mean that's that's the everybody sort of does that right you know look there's a yeah. there's a coles or there's a woolies in this new greenfield spot it must be going off and, you know, there's, a, there's an element of truth in that because if Bunnings is going out there, Coles, Woolies is going out there, they understand population growth and, and demographics better than anybody. So that is a good way to figure out if it's going to be a market that will move. Um, but it, it's, it's really all supply and demand, I think. You really want to be paying attention to what is going to drive demand um, and what supply is going out to that area and how much of it. So on the supply side, we can see development applications, we can see cranes in the sky and that sort of thing. Is there anything else to look at that gives you an indication of, of, of what's what's happening on the supply side? Well, you can pay some money and jump onto, you know, different websites that are quite costly and they'll tell you exact numbers in the area. Um, but I think more anecdotally a way that that you can learn a lot about supply is talking to the people on the ground talking to agents because you know in any given area there might be you know five or six good agents that'll give you a really good understanding of the area um another way that you can think about supply is what to what type of supply is coming to a market um you know, you, you can do a bit of a demographic deep dive, have a look at ABS, you know, data and have a look at what are the biggest emerging um, age groups in a particular area. Is it going to be more downsizers? Is it going to be small family units? Is it going to be more single people coming to an area and why? Like I'll give you a for instance, if you're, looking at a particular area and you know that they're going to be spending a billion dollars on creating a whole new commercial precinct and it's primarily going to be office space and, you know, some retail and, you know, commercial activation on the ground floor. And, you know, there might be, a, a you know, some transport not far locally. And the data is telling you that there's going to be more single households going to a particular or a demand for single households you might want to go and get yourself a one or a two bedroom unit in that area. Or if it's the other way around, if you're going to more greenfield areas and new developments out west or north or south or whatever, um, you might want to say, well, look, it looks like the, the household numbers is going up to sort of 3.2. That's, you know, mum, dad, a child, and then, you know, a half baby coming along. <laughs> yeah. You know, we probably need to get a three or a four bedroom house in that area. Yep. Are there many coming to that market? Yes, no. If it is, yes. Where are they going? Can I pick up something that's closer to, as you said, Coles, Bunnings, you know, a key transport hub? Is it closer to the M2 or M4? What, what makes this piece of real estate unique, different or better than everything else? So, of course, there's the sort of a immutable supply and demand um, magic position, but I guess you're, you're saying that we need to understand what type of demand, right? So the supply might not necessarily be matching the type of demand. So if there is a development that's coming out that matches the demand, then it's going to be more, I guess, 
there's going to be more demand for it. Well, that's exactly right. And we identified this even when that's the, that's the game in property development, right? So you can bring a, a tower to, you know, an area and you can choose within certain limits or certain constrictions with council, am I going to do all one, one bedrooms, two bedrooms or three bedrooms and what mix of one, two and three bedrooms do I want to bring to an area? Do I want to make it cheap and cheerful or do I want to make it luxurious, right? Depending on the type of real estate you buy within that building, that'll really determine the results that you get. And I've seen some people do really, really well buying premium apartments or premium real estate. So, for instance, Waterloo was a market I was working in for a while and it was basically blacklisted by the banks. Um, You know, the reinsurers didn't want to touch the area. So it was very hard to go and get purchases to come into Waterloo if they didn't have more than a 20% deposit because there was a lot of units coming to the Waterloo area. But there wasn't a lot of uh, penthouse apartments coming to the area. There wasn't a lot of really nice premium, you know, split-level apartments with 200 square metres internally close to the CBD. They might be in all of Waterloo, I don't know, less than a 1,000 apartments that are like, there are probably 500 apartments that are like that. So although you could argue the area would have been oversupplied, there was a market for this type of product that performed really, really well and still retains its value and has been growing because there's a demand for that type of um, real estate. Does that make sense, Mike? We've talked, yeah, that makes perfect sense. We've talked a little bit about sort of spotting the the supply side of the equation now on on demand let's say we have a an indication that supply is tight and we believe that there's demand for a particular type of of asset class how can we put our finger on the pulse of demand are there are there are there things like days on market that we should be looking at or vendor discounting are there metrics that are that are better at teaching us the, the the real demand equation it's a hard one. You're right. I mean, you can have a look at days on market. Um, one of my be- best things, and maybe it's just because, you know, I've, I'm a people person, I just really like to get my feet on the ground and my hands dirty. I like to talk to the real estate agents locally. Um, there, they have all the online inquiry. They can see what the demand literally is. You know, they see- Up to the second, right? Yeah, they can see how many people are coming in and inquiring on different types of real estate. They know how many people are coming and doing lowball offers or how long a property is on the market for, how many open house inspections they're doing and how many people are rocking up to that open house. So you talk to the five best real estate agents in an area and they're telling you that every time they put a two-bed two split-level thing with a rooftop on the market and they're getting 40 people out there, you're like, well, it sounds like that. People want that type of real estate or they want that that, that type of um, uh, apartment. Or if you're in Piemont and it, it, there's a massive demand for, you know, old terraces. I think that you can jump online and you can do your research, but there's nothing quite like getting out there and talking to the people that are at the cold face. Yeah. 
I think that's great advice. Are there there's some things that you see investors doing that you think, gosh, I, I wish you'd stop doing that, or or that's really holding you back? Something that you obviously you're analysing people's portfolios when they come to you. Is there something that you see is really putting a stopper in them achieving that wealth equation we talked about? Yeah, that's there's a lot of pet peeves that come to mind. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you know, I think that something that can undermine investors is if they go for the cheapest. Yep. They go for the absolute cheapest or they go for, you know, um, the cheapest when they're working with uh, consultants or they go for the cheapest when they're picking a piece of real estate because you can really hurt yourself. You can, you know, if they're they're trying to build a product or they're trying to do a house on their package and they go for the cheapest build, it's just you can really, really hurt yourself by getting not good quality fixtures and fittings or build. You can screw yourself over by not getting really good quality advice. You know, I've I've seen clients that will get, um, you know, basically financial advice from their solicitors, you know, um, and, and, yeah. and they've been talked out of incredible deals because, you know, their solicitors giving them financial advice. You're like, mate, that's not their job. They haven't, they're not yeah. familiar with this type of contract. This person, you've given them $600 to do this conveyance. I wouldn't trust that advice. Or, um, you know, they're looking at a, an apartment building and they're going for the absolute crappiest apartment, the, the cheapest thing that's south-facing, that's got no views, nothing. You're like, that's a nightmare. What are you doing? You're not going to get yeah. any capital growth yeah. out of that thing. Yeah, it's got a 5.5% rental yield, but what what is $40 a week going to do? That's not moving the needle. That doesn't really help you, and that asset is a huge opportunity cost. You spent half a million mm. dollars on this thing. It's giving you you know, dollars $26,000 a year in uh, rental income. Um, but you're netting a, a tiny portion of that. The, the big thing is you've now locked yourself up, you know, with $450,000 worth of debt and you can't buy something else. So, yeah. Of course, yeah. I think that short-sightedness, it's, it sucks. <laughs> I can I can I can feel the passion oozing <laughs> out of you, Dom. Uh, now I don't want to bang on too much about the market that we're in. Now normally there's a couple of weeks between recording and these podcasts going live, but we are in the middle of this pandemic stuff. Um, is there anything that you think is is a fundamental investing tip or tenant that applies irrespective of what the market's doing? So, yes, the market's rise and fall, we have cycles, but are there things that investors can can target that really if you've got a long-term view, the market what the market's doing is, you know, inconsequential from cycle to cycle? Yeah, I think that going as blue chip as you can is a, I think it's a good strategy provided you're conscious of your cash flow. Yep. Okay. Because they're likely to be relatively low yielding compared to, say, non blue chip. That's right. So, what I mean by that, for all of you that don't know what I mean by blue chip, it's get the best type of real estate you can get in like the best area 
you know, Bondi is a blue chip, inner city is blue chip. But if you can't afford that, then get, you know, something close to, you know, Parramatta's the next CBD, or it is a CBD in its own right. Get the best quality real estate you can get, but be conscious of your cash flow. I, I don't believe in negatively geared properties having, you know, real estate having to cost you money unless you, you unless you know something that all of us don't know unless you're land banking or doing some kind of other risky strategy um, I would say you know the best type of real estate that you can get but make sure that the cash flow is there because you know at times like these cash flow is king and and the reason why people would be selling properties is because they need to rather than want to Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's not having a, not having a buffer to be able to weather the storm. So yeah, the cash flow is pretty, pretty critical there. I want to just talk to you quickly about apartments. So obviously it depends on, on the market, but we've seen people do very well, you know, buying off the plan such as yourself. There's also been a lot of press about some of these larger developments that people have struggled to, to settle on. There's, there's been talk over the last couple of years about an oversupply, certainly in places like Brisbane and, and pockets of Sydney. If, if investors are looking at apartments, what do they need to, to look out for to make sure they're not buying in an area that's got an oversupply or it's just not going to achieve some good growth? Well, yeah, I think you've kind of answered a lot of your questions, the, the question in asking it because <laughs> <laughs> the, the issues arise with apartments when there's an oversupply. You know, if, if, you're, if there's a huge amount of real estate coming to a market, then that's going to be an issue. Um, for a number of reasons. One, because you can't guarantee the quality of what's going out there. If there's, you know, 5,000 units going out there, there's going to be a mixture of some really good ones and then there's going to be a lot of bad ones. So those so bad ones... does that mean that have, you... Go. Sorry, Dom. Yeah, D- does that mean that you would typically go for smaller sort of boutique style or if you understand the supply, you can still go into big apartments because you know that there will be take-up of those? Well, the thing is I, 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 I love apartments, I love house and land, I love commercial, I love all types of real estate and they all have their place. So apartments have a place in a portfolio, okay? Um, and I think that it's it's you can't just – with a, with a big stick to say, you know, uh, big apartment complexes are bad. And the reason why I don't like to say that is because when you have a large number of apartments coming to an area, what you get is density and with density you get intensity. And what I mean by that, you get this vibe. You get like New York City has an absolute vibe, you know. Uh, London has a vibe. So apartments in these different uh, areas can be very, very successful and they can be great pieces of real estate. It just comes down to the underlying asset. Like what is that specific asset and why are you buying it? So the, the lesson that I learned with that um, little one bedroom I bought, for all intensive purposes, it should have been a shitty investment, but it had a unique selling point. It had like a 40 square meter balcony. It was like a three minute walk from the beach. There are things that made that, piece of real estate really really good 
So because the supply of that type of apartment was very very limited, right? It'd be unusual to have such a such a ratio of floor space to balcony as that. That's exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. So for instance, there might be a tower and there's three th- a thousand units, okay, or a couple of towers in a master plan community, but there are forty apartments in there that are just exceptional. That that they have the right angle, they have a huge wraparound balcony, they've got, you know, a rooftop deck, they've got something that makes it unique and unlike everything else in that development. So I feel very, very secure purchasing it. Beautiful. Now, if people are interested in getting in touch with you and downloading some of some more of your wisdom, Dom, what's the best way to do that? If you Google Dominic Neshi or Google Wealthy, W-E-A-L-T-H-I. You'll, you'll see us everywhere. We've got our own podcast. So I have to jump, get you on there. Um, you know, we're on YouTube. We're, we're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Yeah, if you just Google us, you'll find us. And if you don't, I'll be def- surprised. <laughs> you'll, you'll fire your SEO guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I certainly recommend looking up um, Dominic and, and checking out the podcast. There's some some great videos and the, the YouTube channel is absolutely packed with quality content, so check that out. Now, Dom, um, if there's one piece of advice that you could give to property investors in closing, this might be a tricky one, but what do you think that would be? So one piece of advice that I would give to property investors I would say um, dive in head, like dive in deep, okay? Um, and what I mean by that is just read as much as you can, you know, listen to podcasts, take meetings with different consultants and advisors, you know, talk to people, just really throw yourself at the experience because you're not going to buy that many pieces of real estate. And if you're very successful, you eventually will. But when you're doing that, when you're engaging in spending half a million dollars or $10 million, it's effectively the same exercise. Throw yourself at that task and put as many hours as you can because you can become basically an expert very, very quickly. I don't know if you agree with me, Mike, but if you throw yourself at an exercise and you just spend hours every single night or weeks on end, after two or three months, you will know a lot of information and you will meet a lot of people that can help you on your path. I think I, th- I think I do agree. I mean, there's that equation of, you know, you spend 10,000 hours of something and you can really be a master. And I don't think you need to spend 10,000 hours in, in property, but if you invest some time, you at least can uncover what you don't know, right? And that's a pretty powerful position. You can go, you know what, I understand this concept, but I see the value in engaging an expert that that is all they do and that's what they specialize in. So I think you're right. I think it's great advice. Yeah, you'll avoid a lot of pitfalls and you'll at least know what you want like you'll you'll get better you won't make severe mistakes that's that's the big one there you go be a sponge and do the work it certainly worked for yourself uh, dominic and we've uh, certainly got a lot of wisdom from you today so thank you very much for for joining me it's been a real pleasure thanks mike it's been a lot of fun cheers